My guest today is a passionate advocate for the power of business to do good. And he lives that philosophy with a deeply held view that as money leaves our hands, it has our name on it. And we've got a responsibility to ensure that how we spend it, and indeed where we get it from, is adding to society rather than taking away. I'm talking about Joel Solomon. And to start today, let me give you a quick rundown of just a few of his accomplishments. He was a founding partner and senior advisor for Renewal Funds, Canada's largest mission venture capital firm, managing some $98 million. He ran an activist family office for 14 years, deploying more than $70 million. He helped found the Social Venture Network in Canada and RSF Social Finances Integrated Capital Institute. He's a member of Canada's advisory board to the G8 Social Impact Investment Task Force. He's a governor of University of British Columbia and he's written a book. It's called The Clean Money Revolution. It's a great read and it only took me a few chapters before I knew I had to have Joel on the show. So welcome to the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. I had a great chat with Joel. He's a really sensitive and genuine guy who has an almost spiritual connection with his investments and with the communities that they support. He's had a focus on investing in small organic food businesses long before the mainstream trend of going organic. And in the same way, he saw the writing on the wall for fossil fuels long ago. And so he made investments in environmental technology and they boomed. We talk about his book and what he hoped to achieve with it, but also about the many voices and perspectives that it contains. For anyone out there looking for inspiration to either start or invest in a small business that wants to shake up a less than ethical industry, then this is the book. It's packed with stories and anecdotes about business ideas, innovative funding, and stories of communities being strengthened on the back of businesses that are locally owned and run. Now, there's a bit of finance talk in this one as Joel explains what he's working on, but of course, I'm not a financial advisor and this ain't financial advice. So do chat to a professional if any of this inspires you. All right, you can jump onto the website for the show notes at johntreadgold.com. And if you'd like to send through any feedback or comments, then please do. It's much appreciated. All right, let's dive in to my conversation with Joel Solomon. Here we go. Joel, your book, Clean Money Revolution, it charts a rather epic journey of working with a huge range of organizations. You've helped found business and, and investment funds. You hold board seats. Now, I do want to dig into how you manage so many responsibilities. But first, what are you working on right now? What's the focus? This month, we complete the Renewal 4 fund which is quite a big deal for us, having built a mission venture capital firm about 12 years ago. It was early in the uh, impact investing field, and particularly in Canada. And uh, now we're on fund four. We invest in organic food and environmental technologies. So that's a primary uh, responsibility and focus right now is to finish that up. 
and uh, I think we'll exceed our goal and we will, we've got a great team. And so, yeah, we move into the future, investing in some great companies in Canada and the U.S. My second part of what I focus on now in my mid-60s is in what ways can I contribute to climate justice going into the future? As you mentioned, I wrote a book about a lot of these topics, and I want to use whatever coherence I have left for the duration to be the best ancestor that I can be for what is coming next. I think the thing that struck me was the the community that you find yourself in. It seemed that you ended up finding yourself in all of these opportunities and all of these chances to help people. Do you think this is sort of often lost in the discussion of impact investing, this idea of community? You know, a lot of your investments seem to be you having direct skin in the game because it's within your own community. And I think, you know, in, in investing in a big global index ETF is really lost. That's right. Well, I would put community in the frame of the inner and the relational, of course. I believe all things can, perhaps should start with our development as a human being and our point of view on life, our philosophy, what matters to us, what we're attempting to do with our lives. And my desire to find people that I could be inspired by and partner with and learn from and with and get exposed to the broadest understanding of what the solutions may be that help the future have a good chance grew from first the inner journey, which then turns into a relational field journey. And my relationships mean everything to me. And as a very active participant in networks and conferences and in extended community, I've really made somewhat of a, it's kind of the base of my career and the tangible things that I do and the investments or the helping people with their project, whether that be business or in the not-for-profit sector or politics, all of that is inspired by how can I help and how can I help the long-term future? So relationships, yes. Well, that's right. And that's a really key, really interesting part of the book is how you chart all of these interesting people that you've met and then let their voice come through with their kind of examples of how they see the space, of how they see the challenges of sustainability, of how they see the growth of impact investing, all of these elements. So it's a really inspirational book in that way that you get so many different viewpoints. And another common thread is the renewal fund, as you mentioned. You're up to number four, which is quite an achievement. Can you give us a bit of a rundown of of how that whole organization has evolved and, and maybe the difference from, you know, your first renewal one up to number four and how that's evolved? Well, I first must give credit to an extraordinary woman named Carol Newell, who gave me the opportunity to work with her inherited fortune to deploy resources focused primarily regionally in British Columbia, Canada, where we both lived and loved and to work with a multidisciplinary approach to investing in long-term well-being of uh, society and ecology. And it included an investment fund for sustainable businesses. We had a charitable foundation and an investment fund helped build an educational retreat center where we could host diverse collections of people and learning and sharing and relationship building uh, kinds of environments. And then we got involved in public policy and encouraging 
good people to run for political office in the region. So it was a integrated uh, capital strategy approach that I now call social change investing because I think it describes why we do that. So there was an investment fund. We were in early in organic food and sustainable businesses, green households and things like that. I don't know how smart we really were, but we were in some good places in the early stage of several industry sectors that have grown quite rapidly as the challenges of environment, ecology, and and justice on the planet, climate, and many, many issues have now become more prevalent. So that was the beginning. We completed placing $14 million, which actually is what Renewal One would be now. $14 million into a number of companies. Several of them had quite big success. Seventh generation, Stonyfield Yogurt, Happy Planet, Smoothie Company, a number of others. And we decided just before the beginning and during the last recession that we would go out and test as a mission venture capital firm whether there was appetite from other investors. So we were able over two and a half years during that recession to put together 82 investors, primarily Canada and the U.S., but also globally, with a focus, a special focus on charitable foundations who have the problem of their asset base, most of their money, being invested often in creating the issues that they try to solve with the earnings. So giving them a chance to invest their asset base in better alignment has been a movement that we were part of as well. So we went out, we got our, we found 80 investors, we created a, a portfolio of organic food, toxic-free households, and environmental technologies, which really puts us center stage in climate issues. And we built that portfolio. Once we had the portfolio constructed, We went out and raised uh, money from 200 different people, families, foundations, and boutique wealth managers. And in the next month, we will complete the current fund, which will take us likely over $100 million, which is a big accomplishment for a, a small boutique that cares about issues. That's the origin of the fund, and that's the basics about what we do. And when you started it, you wouldn't have had this background of impact investing and all of this philosophical sort of discussion. You know, people like me with podcasts trying to explain it. Do you think that your vision for why you were doing it was the same then? That it was, I want to invest to make a profit and I want it to be aligned with my values and be regenerative, not extractive. Was it similar? Has it changed, do you think? It is similar. I came from a fairly modern thinking family. And I was inspired by some of the early things I was exposed to. Some of them were because of negative feelings about uh, issues that were going on in the 60s and the 70s. And my family were like many immigrant families, uh, a generation and two generations ago, depending on which side of the family, that came to the United States of America from Eastern Europe, leaving oppression and looking for opportunity. And so my grandfather, father, And the rest of, at that time, mostly the male members of the family, 40s, 50s, 60s, created a successful shopping mall business. They were entrepreneurs, and uh, I got exposed to business and the, the potential power of business, money, and finance. And as the 60s wore on and I started thinking about the good and the bad of capitalism and how the world was growing, when I was born, there were under 3 billion people. I'm in my mid 60s now. They're almost 7 billion. And 
having seen you briefly on this podcast, I'd say you will see 10 billion people in your lifetime if you're lucky to live. Problems are compounding. Crisis is compounding. I wanted to prove that money and business could be a powerful force for good rather than a thoughtless force that simply was there to accumulate money. And that premise, I didn't figure out myself. I had the benefit of many organizations and people that inspired and influenced me, but I was in a circumstance that allowed me the opportunity to go out and put together a fund. It all makes so much sense. You know, these businesses you're investing in have so much opportunity and there are so many problems that they can help manage to deal with. What do you think has been holding the markets back? You know, the issues around neoliberalism and, and the greed and extractive nature of it all. Is there something that you've sort of noticed in, in your observation? Is there any common thread that you think could shift? Is it philosophy? Is it the structure of just focusing on GDP? Is there any key nugget that you think could shift and be a real circuit breaker? A primary one is that I don't see a moral force. I don't see global world religions addressing these topics about money and the potency that it could have to do good in the world. I think that we've been given an infinite growth mentality and that the accumulation of massive money is one of the only validators that we are successful humans. So I would say the industrial revolution and particularly the post-World War II rapid growth of industrialization with a exuberant capitalism that was feeding on a frenzy of all the opportunity and creativity that can come from that. It made a lot of fortunes for a lot of people. We thought that we had infinite resources and infinite capacity to grow and expand. There were early warnings, there was science, there were environmental activists, there were others, justice activists, I could say, that uh, pointed out some of the uh, flaws in the system. And we have been in a maturing phase of capitalism now that I had the benefit of seeing some of the early seeds where peace movement, environmental movement, social justice activists started looking at some of the blind spots of capitalism and crafting and inventing how that could be done more consciously and intentionally, and that every dollar actually represents us and who we are and our mark on the world. And there are clearly massive opportunities in the need for smarter ways to build out society and to rebuild society. So there's a natural force, which is human ingenuity, and knowledge about the larger world, those have converged, and we now understand a lot more about our influence on things. So the question is, the grand race is underway. Will consciousness, awareness, and choice outpace blind, forward action and accumulation as a goal just in itself? I believe yes. I live my life that way, and I focus my work on that possibility. There is every reason to be deeply concerned, and we don't know the answer, and we won't know the answer to that conundrum for more decades into the future. 
Yeah, and obviously vital to maintain that hope and optimism. Books like yours, all of the people that you've referenced, are really inspirational in, in driving and, and fighting the good fight and not giving up. But I just want to bounce back to, you mentioned infinite growth, this myth of infinite growth that's a core assumption of so many economic models. And I think part of that is this constant drive for scale. We hear it all the time with startups and any business that people want to invest in. Oh, it's got this potential for scale. But I think it seemed to me in a lot of your investments, it was much more focused on returning to our tribes, to building communities, lower food miles and greater connection. But is that kind of antithetical to scale? Do we need scale? Is some of this a little bit inefficient? You know, how does that fit? We need scale for some things, uh, for sure. I was uh, given a genetic kidney disease through my father's lineage called polycystic kidneys. And 11 years ago, a close friend of mine gave me her kidney. Modern science, the medicine that I take to stop my body from rejecting the kidney that was added, these are essential. It's very hard to create those kinds of pharmaceuticals in small scale. You can do herbal remedies and you can try those things, but modern science has really created some things that matter a lot to us. So many things do require scale. Not everything does. The drive for there's only one real success, which is to be a billionaire or now a multi-billionaire or even a hundred, a centi-billionaire. This seems to be the measuring stick that matters to many people who choose to go into the games of power and concentrated resources. Those pursuits end up having an undue scale of influence on everyone else who choose or who might choose the helping professions or the creative professions. They get outrun by the concentration of money and, and resources. We need to rebalance that. We need to re-feminize. We need to look at indigenous thinking and we need to be more inclusive and have a more long-term view of society that is more fair. And we have the capacity to do this. Scale, you're not going to build an airline without scale. So there are the right uses of scale, but there are also deeply important reasons for local economies and the exchange of goods and services at a human scale that 10 billion people can participate in. Look, I really agree with that sentiment. Certainly in Australia, you know, we've got a very long heritage with our Indigenous peoples and, and that's all too often forgotten and that's a huge opportunity and something that needs to be engaged with. You know, you've got lots of experience in the book talks a lot about that. You know, and, and building, interesting talking about the organic shops that had grown up in neighbourhoods where you'd lived and the growth of organic yogurt stores and, and, and food delivery and all of these great examples. And I just wonder from sort of more of a financial perspective, a venture capitalist perspective, do you find you have to value these companies in a different way? Is it, can you sometimes get a bit lost with the potential impact and forget the financials? How do you balance that? Let's name the incongruities and the paradoxes that uh, life brings us. To change things, sometimes you really need to, you need to make compromises. You need to go into fields and let's say certainly around money and finance, you are not going to find perfect. It's complicated. I believe that we need those companies that are built for scale, but we also need to be exploring and bringing forth all the other ways of local economy and exchange of goods and services, the gift economy, 
the democratization of finance and making giving more people a chance to participate in that economy. And the local is very, very important for the well-being and sanity of just basic human life. We live in communities. We walk out the door. I guess others get, get in cars. Um, I'm, I live in, uh, in cities, but I, I can walk out the door and I'm going to go out and I'm going to look after the needs of my family and myself. And I want to go and shop from people who actually care deeply about what they're selling and how it affects the larger world, people and places they may not ever know, but they care about that. And they care about my health and my well-being with their product. They know that many people do care about all kinds of things. And so we have now an entrepreneurial wave that is growing that is not only the unicorns and the multi-billion dollar tech successes, but is showing up on every street corner, even as home delivery, I'll leave unnamed the great home deliverer that is sending, leaving us all now on our computer and going to the mailbox to pick up whatever stuff we bought yesterday. Those are all forces and trends and there's good and there's bad to them. But the human scale and the bioregional scale and knowing where your food came from, knowing who is making your products and services brings us back to a way of living that actually has humanity at the core of it. And we somehow must in this grand era of incredible technology discovery and innovation to maintain humanity and caring and community and the heart and love and thinking about the long term. We have to have those kinds of values and feelings be even stronger than the ingenuity to solve grand problems and create huge scale of medicine and transportation, et cetera. We have to balance these things. I guess, would you have adopted then the typical venture capital valuing models and that sort of thing? Or did you start, you know, I guess from scratch and, you know, obviously coming from a, a business background, a business family? Thanks for bringing me back to that point the contradictions and the conflicts that exist when you want to do change making. Choosing to go into the venture capital world was a choice to try to make a difference in a place that might be causing lots of damage at grand scales, the same as it's causing some great solutions to happen. So I was historically, and in my personal investing, I'm much more of a local or a relationship investor. I love to put small amounts of money in companies and people that I'm inspired by. And I really believe in that social fabric and how important it is. I like to use the word love. I'd say that the love economy is really important. But by choosing to go into venture capital, there was a thought to it, which was we must help prove that scale as well can be done with good values and caring about the things that matter most to us. So the beauty of today's economy is it's vast and it's multifaceted and you can choose all kinds of different levels of it. I advise everyone, particularly the ambitious ones around money, 
to ask and answer the question on a regular basis of how much is enough and then what? Why am I doing this? What matters to my soul, to my family, to my legacy, and to the future of civilization beyond how much can I accumulate and how powerful can I be? We need people who care deeply and have a spiritual analysis, a justice analysis, an ecological perspective to go into these major systems and help them be designed and focus in the right way. Right now, there's a lot of angst going on about artificial intelligence and who are the people putting in what kind of values into what AI is going to do. That's crucial. So in this day and age, we need people who can work in big scale and people who can work in the very local and personal. And so the choice, since we had developed the skill set to invest in growth-based companies, they need this kind of thinking as well. You can build a business on that. We made a choice to call ourselves Mission Venture Capital and see if we could do it in a way that we could tell our children about and be proud of. That's so great. A local relationship investor. I really like that. And the love economy. I think that that's really a succinct wrap up of what I'm trying to achieve with this podcast in kind of giving people some inspiration that there are different ways to invest. And I just wonder, you know, if we could give people, I guess, that inspiration. Now, you know, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't want to give people advice. But in that, that local investing, relationship investing, is there any perspectives you could help people understand of how, you know, there are bigger options than just buying an ETF than just going to a fund manager? You had examples in the book of meeting people and, and they were starting a venture, just a, a small business, and you were one of the first investors that just, you had your nest egg and boom, you put it into this small, untested, local small business. Is there a way that people can sort of start thinking about that if they're at home and wondering how they can get involved? Number one, I believe that money that comes to me and then leaves from me has my name on it. And it represents my morals, my ethics, my spiritual views of the world, and what I care about. Ignoring that choice, I believe, is a mistake. I think it's a responsibility to pay attention to it. I want to give a pass card to the three billion people who are scrambling just to keep a roof over their heads and feed their families. We live in a very unfairly distributed wealth world. But to that upper percentile that do have enough and more than enough, where do we bank? What does our bank do with the money? Where do we buy insurance? Where do we invest our retirement savings? Where do we shop? What are those products? Where do they come from? Soon we will know. We will be able to scan that cell phone and find out the entire history of who made products, what they did to places and people, what the companies are like, how they treat their employees, how they handle their supply chain. We are going to have this information. In fact, I hope that we're not far away from a blockchain record or a blockchain-like record that can tell us the entire history of the money that comes to us and then leaves with our name on it and where that money goes. So this matters. It matters on a personal level. 
It can change our communities by choosing to shop locally and get to know our merchants by knowing a farmer, by shopping direct from farmers. There are many, many choices that we can each make. Even when we choose our ETF, our stock market investing, we can choose for the better companies and the least damaging companies. So we have this choice every day. It's a power that we have let go of too often. But I want to know what my bank is doing with my money while I'm asleep tonight. And I think you should too. Well, that's it. And I think there's so many options now and that this really is becoming a, a key factor. I mean, in Australia, we've got four big major banks and they've all come under a lot of scrutiny with a Royal Commission and none of them have really come out too well. And there's a lot of smaller competitors now that, that are able to leverage the fact that they are small, they are local and they are you know, more focused on their customers rather than simply the bottom line. And as you mentioned, technology has a big role to play there. And I think, you know, so much of innovation these days is focused on technology from a, an iPhone perspective, from AI. But there's also a huge opportunity in this business model innovation of finding different ways to do things that banks don't have to operate the way they always used to. They could operate for the good of customers. They could be owned by the customers in a mutual type way. Could you sort of give us some examples there? I know in the book, Mark, I can't remember Mark's surname, but he had that equity model with the real estate business that, that paid back capital with dividends and the equity then reverted to the founder. Maybe you could break that down for us. Yes, uh, my friend Mark Deutschman, he in the lead and me as the uh, co-founding partner and minority owner, saw an opportunity that was going on with the suburbanization of everything and the bulldozing of urban neighborhoods, low-income neighborhoods, historic buildings, all of that. We were in Nashville, Tennessee, by the way. And he was a good salesman, and I'd grown up in a real estate family. And so I saw a number of things that to me looked like opportunities, which basically in simple form were reclaim the city and bring life back to it, make a flourishing place for small business, while the shopping malletization of the suburbs and the creating of kind of cookie cutter stores that sold the same thing all over the country and, and that kind of thing. But there was a huge opportunity, creativity, community, and really f important fabric for a city in focusing on the core and the existing neighborhoods and such. So when Mark decided he would actually start his own real estate company, I had seen the founders of Ben and Jerry's, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, at one of the organizations I had joined early on that were entrepreneurs who were trying to be do-gooders with their product. And those guys had committed 1% of their profits towards their mission and to give it away. And I thought that was really beautiful. And there's a lot to say about all the good benefits of that. But one of the things, when, when I talked to my friend Mark, I said, we should do something like this, but 1% of the profits is hard to legislate in permanently. The documents could be changed. Why don't we give ownership in the company to charity on the front end. So our third, I don't know if it happened, actually, I can't, I, I'm not exactly sure when we did it, but very early in the business, 5% of the ownership went into a charity and that's created millions of dollars to give away in the community. The other thing that it did was bake in to the DNA of the entrepreneur 
and the key leaders in the company, and then the employees, the, the brokers, the real estate brokers, and people that were attracted there could see the mission and the purpose of this business that grew from that early move, but became a theme for what differentiated us in a very uh, full real estate market where most people are selling strictly on service and accuracy and getting you the best dollar. And we said, yes, we can do that. And we can do it better because we're attracting the people who really care because they're coming to a company that has serious community values. There are many more stories than just that donation. But that's what that meant. And there's another part of the model you may be asking me, and I may have answered the wrong question, but this had to do with raising money as a small business and creating a formula in which you get a salary, which is agreed to in advance, and there's an annual increase that can be agreed to in advance. But you first pay back the investors their original investment. And once you do that, you flip in your ownership from a small minority based on the cash you put in to the majority and control interest as the entrepreneur. This is the opposite of what tends to happen in kind of venture capital, where more and more money comes in and the entrepreneur eventually loses control. This model for small businesses said, we'll put the cash, you put the sweat equity and your life into this, pay back the original cash, and then you own control of the company but we get a trailing interest forevermore unless you buy us out. And so I've been involved in using that model several times. And I think it's very satisfying for entrepreneurs to have a pathway to gain full control while taking fair, good care of their investors. Yeah, it's very interesting. So how does that balance risk then? Does that kind of take the risk off the external investors because they can sort of exit earlier because they can almost get their principal back and then have a trailing interest. It's almost kind of similar to a loan, but with the equity support, how would you see the risk factor and how that balances? Well, it definitely reduces the risk for the investors because instead of just betting on raising massive amounts of money to try to be a multi-billion dollar company, you know, then have a massive profit, we've done the other version, which is our money's out early we're talking about friends and family investors and small investors for starting these kinds of local businesses. Usually this business didn't aspire to become international. It came about to inspire other real estate companies to pick up these principles. One mile radius is Mark Deutschman's book about real estate. If any listeners are interested in that, and it's a very unique company, but it's highly successful. So yes, Get the investors paid back early, knowing that they still have a piece of the action for a long time. It tends to make a happier balance and less heavy muscling of the entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur in a small business is better off having control than trying to do business with a whole bunch of outside people who aren't really the experts in their business. So there are many creative things that, that one can do with business models. Yeah, that's great. I think that's a really something that I sort of hope people get out of this podcast. You know, we had Jed Emerson, and Tom Dawkins, a couple of great guys offering, you know, similar options with co-ops and just this offering this inspiration for so many different ways to run your business, to raise equity, to manage risk. And that, you know, if there's a will, there's a way. And I think there's a, a growing, you know, community of sort of social impact 
groups and hubs that are coming together to share this knowledge. So really great to hear that example. I mean, this might be putting you on the spot a little bit. I'd love to hear about maybe a failure, but something that really taught you something. I'm starting to have the philosophy that there's no such thing as failure. It's just experimentation and that you need to learn from it. Are there any really key lessons that that you've learned from something that didn't quite go right? Diversity is really valuable. I like to spread my risk by putting uh, smaller money in lots of investments rather than going for the big home run. So I get to have failures and not have to sweat them too much. I get attached. I generally love the entrepreneurs and the products and I care a lot. And if you get to know the employees and customers and things like that, it can become very, very personal. But the starting place is failure is a part of success and attempting to uh, have perfect success is really unrealistic in my view. But to have a specific, we had the great idea when I was working with Carol Newell that independent media needed to exist, but was under threat. Now, and we're talking 20 something years ago now, and that's all proven true. First of all, we invested in and then gradually ended up purchasing controlling influence because the entrepreneur was worn down. But we bought a local monthly magazine that was covering a lot of the alternative business world and thinking in communities. You know, that one of those magazines you might pick up for free at the uh, on on a newsstand somewhere. We thought that that was a really great way to highlight people that were doing meaningful and important things that would inspire the community. And it also, of course, is a marketplace because the advertisers become people that have affinity for the kind of readers that you have and the kind of issues that you're putting forth. They're very interesting. But in modern times, technology made a huge change in it, as did finance and consolidation of the media industry. So then there came social media and uh, the ubiquitousness of everyone effectively. I think that I have a magazine, which is called My Posts on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook. And I get to communicate with thousands of people. And it's my point of view, and I'm sharing stories and the things that I care about. So we got into the idea with an entrepreneur of buying up the monthly local magazine that was the one that was focused on kind of the alternative front edge in different major cities. And a fair amount of money was invested. It eventually could not get the scale. The media business and that kind of advertising was fading. Craigslist came along and Facebook came along and all of that. And uh, we lost all of our money. And it was the, the biggest financial failure that we did in a business that we went into. The second thing I want to put in here was real estate, which we can believe never fails and always goes up. And it may over time if you can hold on. But we invested in one of the oldest buildings in Vancouver to create what we thought would be a center of do-gooders in business and in not-for-profits. We took 50,000 square feet and responsibility to build out the five floors. And we did a great job, but the recession came. Our tenants disappeared. We were bleeding money and we had to negotiate our way out and walk away from a multi-million dollar investment there. I'm sitting in that building today 
It's an awesome place in the center of one of Vancouver's most dynamic and diverse neighborhoods. And I'm very proud of it, as is Carol, whose money was actually most of what got lost there. And so we still created something that mattered. But those are two stories of our biggest financial failures. Diversification really is an important lesson there. And I think important in biology and ecology isn't it as much as as investing. So quite almost a natural rule there. If you're going to try to beat nature, you're probably going to lose. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That should be one of those underlying lessons, shouldn't it? If anybody can take anything away from this today. Yeah, always bet on nature. Always bet on nature. And look, I've sort of dropped a little bit about the book, The Clean Money Revolution. I really enjoyed it. Can you give us a bit of a a background as to why you chose to write it, what you hope to get out of it and, and how it's been received? I turned 60. I thought about all the privileges and and opportunities, experiences, people that I'd met, and I care deeply about the world and the future and the things that matter to me, which those are high on the list of. First of all, I gave myself a PhD in eldering. I thought I should honor the elder part of life as the uh, highest part, not just deterioration and and loss, but uh, the peak of my insights and experience and ability to share and be useful to people. But I did think a lot about what what does that look like? I'd been a fairly one-on-one and networked-based person, and it seemed to me that the challenges in the world are reaching the scale where I would try to share that experience and perceptions on a bigger platform, bigger scale. Uh, I guess I scaled. How do I scale my thoughts and, and experiences. And a book, you know, can kind of go on and on or not. Most of them don't get very far. It's hard work writing a book and becoming in the book business to try to get the book circulated. But in any case, I wanted to share as much as I could of anything that I felt could be useful to other people and particularly younger people and people that were dealing with excess amounts of wealth, and then entrepreneurs who are thinking about their contribution to the world as well as a financial success, and to try to give all those constituencies and others some maybe interesting perspectives on how to think and where to find what you're looking for. So I, with a co-writer, Tyee Bridge, put together a book which is of the following parts. First are personal stories about my journey and how did this thinking come about and how did I find my way through the very confusing morass of what is one supposed to do with one's precious human lifetime. So that took me some time and a lot of research study and exposure to people that I thought were doing courageous and visionary things. The second part of the book is about my exposure to this field of doing good with money, whether as an investor, a donor, or a consumer, a teacher about money, all all of the different ways that it touches. And that my feeling that it's time to seed advanced ethics and morality about money came from my exposure, which was its own unique opportunity, to the entrepreneur's both of the for-profit and not-for-profit world and the political worlds who deeply cared 
and were values-driven people who were willing to go into the fray and develop competence and capability and leadership skills and ability to create products and services that would matter. Products and services that matter done by people who actually care, the entrepreneurs who actually care, for-profit, not-for-profit, and other. And so I map a taxonomy, just a personal one, not an academic one, of some of the early organizations and people and thinking about these concepts, and then how those splintered off into multiple other groups in different niches, and how this movement, as I think that we're in, about clean money, how it evolved, where some of the seeds were, and where it might go, and how you might find your way through the looking glass into these worlds. The third section of the book is the moral and ethical call to action that it is our job as ancestors of the future to do everything we can with all the tools and resources that we have to ensure a safe, clean, fair future in which the coming generations can enjoy even part of the incredible life opportunity that the privileged half of our world today has been able to live through because of the technological revolution. But if we don't handle it well and pass it on properly, it may cause serious problems for the people that are coming next. That's what the book's about. There's something that really grabbed me, and, and it might just be a coincidence, but the foreword is by Jesse Tolkien. And the first line is, I was born in 1981, the beginning of the millennial generation which is when I was born. And I think it's an interesting moment. I think there's something about that period and, and maybe, uh, you know, I'm not sure if it is something about the nature of, of the period that we grew up in where we were just coming of age when the internet came about, we were at university when mobile phones and, and Facebook came through and that we've faced stock market crashes and, and this environmental destruction and, and this responsibility. But the pace of change, I think, is faster now than ever before. And suddenly we're, you know, coming into money, into inheritance and starting to make investments. So perhaps that's part of it. I think the millennial generation is an interesting one. We're almost 40, which is, I think, might shift a lot of people's perspectives. Because as we've seen with the climate strike, we've got this new generation that are almost the polar opposite of, I never liked the millennial cliches, but this group are really activists. They're sharing on social media, but in a really different way. And they're making their voice heard about issues that are really, I think, far more important than perhaps my generation, which was a little bit more internally focused, a bit more individual. Anyway, like a bit of a rant about being an aging millennial, but um, yeah, that was something that grabbed me. So even the forward's great. So I'd, uh, I'd encourage people to read it. And look, that's certainly going to go on the Good Future book list, but it would be great if you could give us another recommendation, something else that sort of helped inspire your reading and, and that people uh, could get more inspiration from. Oh, the list is long, but I think that uh, two that kind of frame what I've said is uh, one on the justice side, Morgan Simon is a woman who has devoted her life to activism on social justice issues. And she is also now an investment advisor for creative deployment of capital towards rebalancing and making things more fair. She advises high net worth individuals and such. 
She's written a book effectively on what social justice funding specifically might be when you actually, I use the term broadly as well, but in specifics, the different kinds of ownership forms and capital that are coming about. I highly recommend it so you can get a flavor of that. A second one is kind of already a classic by an author who has written several classics and I was inspired by early in my career, which is Paul Hawken and his book, Drawdown. And Drawdown maps out the climate disaster, which is possible, possibly coming on uh, faster and faster now, and really maps out, I think it's 99 solutions, top solutions to climate. And as we draw down our carbon uh, allotment on the planet, here are specific practical things that you can do in many different fields. And I must add, that when you add up three of the top, I think it's the top 20, it's not a surprising outcome to many people, which is that investing in the well-being of women globally is the most significant climate positive impact that can happen. And you'll have to read the book to hear the explanation of that. There we go. Leave us on a cliffhanger. I like that. I like that. Well, look, we'll leave it there today, Joel. Really appreciate you uh, calling into us from Canada, from the lovely British Columbia. So really appreciate all of your insights. The book's great and people can go deeper there. And yeah, look, a really rich overview of, of everything that you've learned in the past while and really appreciate it. So thank you. And then hopefully we can catch up again soon. May I add uh, just the uh, website for the book, joelsolomon.org. There's a lot of O's in that Solomon. S-O-L-O-M-O-N, and then renewalfunds.com if you want to see a mission venture capital fund. I am on, in my name, uh, social media in the major ones, and I welcome uh, connection with you. And finally, I look like I'm coming to Australia for a second trip uh, coming up in the next few months. I'm really looking forward to that, and maybe there'll be some public events or things like that that listeners could check out very good well you're always welcome down under so uh looking forward to that that'll be great and i'll um i'll include all of the links to the website and the book and those sorts of things um in the show notes at johntreadgold.com so people can check that out and follow all of what you're up to thank you so much for inviting me and taking time to do a great interview pleasure john it's been great